Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a freelance horror writer slash journalist and former staff writer for Killer Horror Critic. He's also a very good friend of mine, and he was amazing for jumping in for this very special kind of emergency episode today, since... uh. Uh, real talk, everybody. I had COVID for the second time in the span of this pandemic, and I unfortunately was unable to do a recording last week, and my guest today was wonderful to jump in and help me get this one done the same week that this is coming out. So I want to give major, beautiful greetings to Justin Drebeck. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. Super, super happy to have you on and to talk to you again. Yeah. Uh, it's been some time. It has been. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so for those who don't know, Justin was on the first season of The Beauty of Horror, which is on the anatomy of a Scream feed. So it's really awesome to have you back for season two. And you do me a major solid here. So hooray all around. And Awesome. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. And glad, glad there's a season two. So that's awesome. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And hopefully there will be many more to come and we can Heck do yeah. this over and over again. <laughs> That'd be, I'll do it. Anytime you ask me, I'll be there. Hell yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, now, for everybody listening, now normally this would be the time that I would give you a quote pertaining to philosophy regarding beauty and our film today, but due to the fact that this is a bit of an emergency, last-minute thing, so that I would have something recorded for this week, I was not able to prepare that. I had to catch up on all of my work after having COVID, and uh, I, it was enough for me to do this recording right now at around midnight, so... Apologies there if you're a really big fan of the quotes. Uh, nothing this week in terms of philosophy quotes, but I'm going to bring my own knowledge in. And I don't think we necessarily need it because I think the film speaks for itself. But before we get into that, Justin, now I've already discussed with you about how you got into horror. So I want to now ask you, what is it or what is your favorite thing about being a horror fan currently? <laughs> Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the thing that I love about it, and I've always sort of loved about horror, which is why I got into it in the first place, is it just allows you to process through uh, a, diff a range of different emotions, anger, fear, sometimes joy. Like when you watch a character who's crappy get killed. <laughs> yep. I'll be the first to admit it. Like sometimes it's like, oh, that, that makes me happy. Because, you know, because you can't really do that in real life, so... I think, uh, but I just think the cool thing is about like how, and especially as horror keeps on becoming more and more, although this is a continual battle, more and more just available on your home device and through streaming and you can do all these things. You just have access to it just like any other entertainment. But I think horror is just one where you like watch a great horror film and you want to get out and tell everyone about it more so than any other genre I can think of, except for like maybe the comic book movies. You're basically able to sort of be like, oh, holy crap, Shudder has put this out. It's so good. I'm going to tweet about it. I'm going to Instagram about it. I'm going to text my friend. And I and I, the only other thing I can think of that does that is kind of, kind of the comic book movies. But though it's more divisive there, I think. Now, there is a segment of the horror community that is uh, also divisive. So <laughs> full transparency there. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely going to be pockets of any 
fan base and community that are divisive for various reasons. And, and a lot of the times it, it can also come down to just like different camps having different ideologies or means of communication. So the miscommunications lead to more divisiveness as you go and then it just splinters off, right? For sure. And it's also the sort of thing where like if we're doing it, in, especially with Twitter, and I tweet something out and then it gets misrepresented, people look at it like, oh my God, I can't believe you think that. May not be what I mean, but I sort of either screwed up or it was what I meant and then we can have a conversation. But conversations where it sort of delineates a lot of the times for people like, oh, and actually I had a conversation, I just want to retweet this and yell at you. Mm. So, and you're always going to that no matter what. It, any, As you said, any fandom is going to have pockets that are like, sometimes it's like language barrier, sometimes it's verbiage, sometimes it's just plain misunderstanding, and sometimes it's just shitty people being shitty. But I, I think horror also has some of the most open-minded fans and to be able to have places where you can communicate with people about what you love and why you love it and what moves you, I think is always a beautiful thing and good for community in general. Even if there's going to always be the outline sort of like negativity, that's just going to be around no matter what. So try to be positive and put forth your energy into hyping up something or getting people interested in it. Absolutely. I also feel that what you were saying about the fact that horror can help you process things due to its kind of aggressive and transgressive nature and the subject matter, right? You know, it's very difficult stuff sometimes. I think due to that, though, you have people who have a lot to process, who gravitate towards it. And then when we're all talking to each other in this sort of echo chamber on Twitter, you just hear back like your own triggers and traumas and everybody deals with those things in different ways so they're reading movies in different ways and some people can be more touchy about one film than the other other people just see them as like popcorn flicks other people see them as part of their you know career basically and when you get all of this mixed together you realize that None of you are having the same conversations unless you're as clear as possible in your communication. And right. I agree with you that the beauty of it all, though, is when you can put those differences aside and you find where you connect and what have you been processing and what, what are you exploring, or even at the very least of just going, I vibe with that. I vibe with it, too. And you don't really have to get into why. You just kind of yeah. go, you, you feel that? Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful feeling. Well, and that's my favorite thing. And that's what I love when that happens. Like uh, there are sometimes people will like write a review of something and I will read it. I'll be like, oh my God, I want to see that movie. And then if I get something completely different from it, I go, oh, you know what? I just checked out that movie. Maybe I didn't like it. Maybe the reviewer hated it. Maybe I loved it. There's always going to be a nuance. But then also when somebody's tweets like, holy crap, this affected me. Don't need to give you a reason why. It also leads to people like, oh, that movie sucks. You know, and like, but mm -hmm. that's going to happen no matter what. So I really love it when people just are like, this movie means a lot to me. And then I don't need to know anymore. It's like if I if, if I find we're vibing in general with like your taste, I will at least check it out or put it on a list to check it out. Yeah, that's all I hope I do. And people when I tweet about a movie I love or talk about a movie I love or, you know. I hope that people check it out if they haven't seen it and it may not be for them because sometimes it is like triggering. It may be sometimes something that doesn't affect me at all. And I can watch a movie about the subject 
totally doesn't work for other people, but you just never know. So I think it's really good to just try to maybe, I don't know. I don't know why I'm even going off of this tangent. Not because I've had a weird day. Uh, (laughs) Maybe it'd just be good if we just tweeted that, like, hey, I like this movie. Like, let's not go any deeper because you may you may hate it, but I like it. Yeah. And as been mentioned uh, on this podcast quite a few times by some of my guests, uh, you cannot have a nuanced discussion on a platform like Twitter. It's built to where you're not supposed to do that. So no. that's what these sorts of podcasts and stuff are for is to really have that safe space to explore mm-hmm. those feelings. And then, you know, that's what comment sections and stuff are for is like totally agree with your inner workings and who you are as a person. <laughs> but when we're on Twitter, it's like, Hey, I like that. Basically the only way you can really balls this up is if you're that, you know, dick who comes in and going, well, you're an idiot for liking it. And then it's like, well, Tone it down just a little bit, please. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not doing that, if you're like, cool, agree to disagree, you're doing it right. That That's how that's how we do the twits, basically. Yeah, no, well, that's how I try to do it. And sometimes I fail at this, but I just try to, I just see something I don't agree with. I just don't want to get involved. So I just ignore it and say, okay, moving on. Don't need to comment. Maybe completely disagree with you, but that's okay. So, you know, and I, and I, and I, I feel like, it's especially if it's something about like a film's opinion, like, oh, Scream 4 is the worst movie ever. I'm like, I don't need to hear that a million times. I like it. But if I see it, I'm not going to engage with you because I'll just be like, OK, you can have your opinion. I'll like it. That's fine. Exactly. Exactly. And you can't really stop people from feeling what they feel. So what's the <laughs> point in doing all that in the first place? Uh, and if you just really like, well, then I can't like you, go make other friends. That's fine. <laughs> that's That's life, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know what? You know what I love the most about horror films in this whole context is that they always have more drama than anything we're going to deal with in any sort of discourse, right? hundred percent. And that's another reason why I think you nailed it on the head there. It's another reason why I love it. It's like the movie we're going to talk about today. It's like, I'm never going to have these experiences, but there's emotional key points I can relate to, even though there's no way I could ever have these experiences. Or even if I do, there's no verifiable proof I had them because it deals with ghosts. You know, but it's like, so it's, it's fascinating to me that uh, you, you can just dive in and it is filled with drama. It's heightened too. It's like, and that's, what's great about art is it heightens reality to a point where it's on reality sometimes, but you're still engaging with it in ways that you relate to it because of who you are. Mm, uh-huh. I love that. It's who you are that kind of drives you there. So you've already kind of touched upon it a little bit. What film will we be discussing today? Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak, the Guillermo del Toro classic from 2015. And you want to talk about divisiveness. (laughs) One of the first hugely divisive films in his catalog. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I'm happy you brought it in because I am definitely pro-peak. Um, for anybody who has not seen it just yet, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis, and I do highly advise that you go check it out before listening to this, because we're going to get into spoilers, of course. Uh, here is what IMDb has to say as a synopsis, and let's see if it holds up to our feeling uh, and you know, uh, on the basis of how the film actually goes. It says... In the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love for her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, she is swept away to a house that breathes 
bleeds and remembers. I gotta say, they did a good job on this one. I don't know if somebody actually uh, gave them that one or whoever put that in was like, fucking Crimson Peak, I'm gonna be poetic and make the synopsis. That was a good one. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I I would say that's like a very good uh, brief synopsis of it. I think it it misses some things there, but, you know, it's just a just a little synopsis, so. Yeah, but unlike most of the ones that they have, like if they do these like little one-sentence ones, and notice that they tend to be really just kind of like, a woman goes and does a thing, and it's bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy that this one tried to at least give you the feeling of the house, and it really f- highlights the fact that this house is just as much of a character in the film as yeah. anything else. Or anybody else, I should say. So, uh, I mean, yeah, all things considered, for IMDb standards, very That's good. That's pretty synopsis. good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would completely agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were really quick with Crimson Peak, and I'm always happy to see how people are like, boom, this movie then. And uh, you know, has it been on your mind lately? Since you know, I did come to you rather last minute for this episode, or were you just kind of like, hey, I can always talk Crimson Peak. Uh, I think it's a combination of both. I think basically I sort of sat down and thought and I wanted to avoid my usual trap of a Stephen King adaptation. So I was like, (laughs) of course, if you watch the trailer, one of the first quotes is from Stephen King. So I can't quite get out of uh, still in your head. (laughs) Yeah, it's still there. So I was as I I show my partner the trailer. It's like, oh, it's a movie I'm talking about my friend. And then the first thing I saw when I was watching the trailer, it's like Stephen King. I forget. I said it's like the creepiest film we saw all year. And I'm like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it does have this kind of King DNA to it as well. The way that the characters are explored, you know, Del Toro just does such a phenomenal job with this film and how he captures Gothic romance and horror in it. But it's like the way they are portrayed on the page, he has decided to express in film. So not like an adaptation of a gothic horror, but more like, how would you give me the same information without exposition the way you would in a book? And uh, to nobody's surprise, I guess, Del Toro nailed it. No, of course he did. Um, But it's also interesting because it's one of the things where it like... And I'm in it. You sort of talked about this. It feels like it is an adaptation, though. Yeah. It feels like, oh, I should be able to go to a bookstore and there should be Crimson Peak. And I'm gonna, I want to see it like elongated, maybe little pieces. What, what did he leave out? And they're like, oh, no, this isn't it based on, even though a, a book is the central part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll go, go into a little bit later. I think sort of the meta ness of that, um, the fact that she is an author and she's telling the story. Uh, that, that that the other character keeps on reading and sort of commenting on it, and it's very how much it mirrors what's going on in their life is fascinating. So, oh yeah, we can definitely touch on that. Um, before we do, I'm curious. Then, like, obviously, if we're going to be talking Guillermo del Toro, beauty is kind of a, it's a must for me at this point. I can't imagine a del Toro film that doesn't try to overwhelm you with beauty in just about every possible way you can have a beautiful experience with something terrible, right? He has <laughs> no, no chill when it comes to beauty. <laughs> um, but is there an element to this film that you find like more striking than others by any chance? Uh, in, in his filmography, I find it more striking because it really relies less on creature design 
and more mm -hmm. atmosphere. And yeah, you could say that the house in it of itself is uh, sort of a creature-esque thing because it does live and breathe essentially. And then it's got all the ghosts in it. But I think it definitely relies on his use of Doug Jones and use of like really, really awesome looking things. But I think the things that are more striking to me are the moments that don't really revolve around your typical del Toro look. Hmm. It's more like the stuff in Buffalo, New York, where it's like brightly lit and yet still moving you and, you know, I, I'm more engaged a lot of the times in the film when it's just like the heavy dialogue. I really feel this movie is much more tell than show, which in, you're not supposed to do. But I really feel that this movie is more of a saying something than showing something all the time. And I could see how some people like that would be divisive for some people to not really enjoy that because they want rather than, oh, shock me. And of course, it has the moments. But there's a lot of things where it's the dialogue that's really moving the story along more than visual. And he's such a visual filmmaker. I find that fascinating that in this one, he's like, I'm going to let the script do a little bit more this time than the very nuanced and specific del Toro visuals. It's interesting you point that out. I hadn't thought of it until you're mentioning it, but it, it could be one of the reasons that it's so divisive because as you were pointing out, he, we are used to just expecting an overwhelming amount of, you know, practical visuals that are just magical, right? Mm -hmm. I think that maybe that comes from the fact that the first two big releases of his, uh, even Kronos, I'd say, so maybe even the first three, uh, especially his Spanish language films, all come from this realm of fairy tales, and a fairy tale is a very simple story. When it comes to the exposition and dialogue, you're not going to get much there. It's, you know, think of like Hansel and Gretel. It's really just like, oh, but Madam Witch, what are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, I like to treat children well. Eat the candy, said the witch. Yeah, it's very simple. Um, but it's usually, as you said, like in this film as well, it's like atmosphere is very important. So he has a show, don't tell kind of thing, even though there's like narration in Pan's Labyrinth to kind of give it that, you know, bedtime story kind of vibe to it yeah but yeah you're right like unless you're really focused on say the human drama of those films the dialogue is way less important than just the overall experience but a gothic horror tale really relies on people's inner thoughts their fears their desires their repression is a huge yep. part of it as well yep you can't discuss repression without like going into almost like Freudian levels of what was your life like and how did you experience it? So yeah, it is a very jarring experience. And I remember I was one of those people when it came out going like, mm, don't know if this one's for me. Cause I was expecting a scary ass movie. And then it was, you know, Jane Eyre basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now I appreciate it for what it is. And I think that it's probably the best film at least in the modern era. So I'd say modern in the sense of like from the eighties on, I think it's the best of the bunch that has tried to tackle this. I think the only other properties that I would say do it as well would be the haunting series that Flanagan's created for Netflix. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I would completely agree actually. And I, what I love about it is it stands out in his filmography in such a, in, well, I guess Pacific Rim also does, but even then that's so like, 
monster base that you're like, okay, I get it. I get why I wanted to do this and have a lot of fun and get paid to play in a toy box. <laughs> yeah. But but it's, and I think that film came out right before this one, so it was like such a jarring like thing because you know you're following you're following Del Toro's career and you get to Pacific Rim, which is yeah, I think a lot of people dropped off like oh really? I mean he did uh, Hellboy, you know, so people are kind of used to the action mm-hmm. stuff, but then he's like nope, we're, I'm going full action here, and then the next thing it's like okay, well not stepping all the way back room myself taking one of the actors from Pacific Rim and now here's your gothic romance story you didn't know you wanted and I feel like he's definitely taken that with him a little bit like the shape of water I think I don't think that happens without Crimson Peak just in terms of like or maybe it does I don't know um but I definitely feel like I really like that juxtaposition of like here's this huge action set piece which I'm not a big fan of uh, personally, Pacific Rim, and then here's like this nuanced, small. Pay, you have to pay attention to the dialogue. You have to realize like that there's sort of a story going on with the story, and then also ghost upon ghost upon ghost, and you know like that romance, like the sort of mystery. You've got different characters trying to figure out what's going on as things are happening. You also still have this like very peak Del Toro visuals. I, so I just think it really works. But I have a funny story. So I, the first time I saw this movie I saw in theaters, I was so excited. It was like I was a kid, and I stayed up all the night before. And I'm, oh. you know, I'm, I'm almost 39, so I wasn't a young man when this happened in 2015. <laughs> uh, so I remember doing that, and then I went to, had to go to work. So worked, and then I went with my friend to a showing. I totally fell asleep during this movie in the theater. Because I was exhausted. So I went back the next day, but I, I was just like, oh, I'll make it. And then 20 minutes in, because it is slower moving. Like, there's no yeah, question yeah. about it. I just, I think I was also sort of in your headspace. I'm like, oh, this is going to scare the living crap out of me. And actually, it does now, but in ways totally different than I expected. Mm-hmm. But I just remember falling asleep and just feeling so bad because I, I dragged my friend with me. I'm like, we got to see this. This new Del Toro. Like the trailer is like my favorite thing. I've obsessively watched it. I'm so excited. Okay, I'll go to work. I'll meet you afterwards. We'll go five minutes in. I was asleep for like 20 minutes. Oh, so <laughs> such a bummer. Yeah, but then I went back the next day and I think I already sort of knowing it was going to be slower because I only saw like, you know, the first 20 minutes and then I then I woke up then finished the film so there wasn't much I missed but I just feel like it was just a funny thing that I'm now raving about it when it made me fall asleep but that that's not Del Toro's fault fault it's mine well also I guess there's something about the slowness of the pace that makes it kind of comforting to you know drift away to uh, I, I I admire that it also makes me feel like you know, like really old classic horror films, like the Universal films, the Hammer horror movies, as mm-hmm. loud and bombastic as they are, they're so fucking slow. Yeah. And I often, I, I, you know, we we grew up in the sci-fy channel era, and I don't mean the S-Y-F-Y, I mean like science yeah. fiction sci-fi channel. And that was the shit, right? They would put yeah. on like 
they wouldn't put on the thing. They'd put on the thing from another world. Yeah. And you would just have the perfect sick day kind of stuff as a kid. Oh, for sure. Curled up in bed watching these like schlocky monster movie marathons they had on there and just drifting away. Yeah. Like a little comfort blanket. And Crimson Peak, I feel, has that tone to it because it does harken back to, say, like your 1933 Invisible Man, I think it was a 33. Uh Um, Those sorts of like dramatic, uh, just, oh, yeah, drama infused movies. Um, So I can totally see if you're a little tired. (laughs) <laughs> why that would happen to you, even in the cinema. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 how I'm with you on this, by the way, when it comes to it being scarier now. What a testament to a movie that the trailer makes it look like it's going to be the most intense, terrifying thing. But mm-hmm. this came out in that sweet spot. You know, The Conjuring had already come out. We we're on like the third Insidious at this point. So horror had a formula. Blumhouse was really carving in at this point and so we knew what to expect from a horror movie so the idea of guillermo del toro doing a modern horror movie was so exciting because mm-hmm. better to scare the shit out of you than guillermo del toro and then it's this and we were like oh damn it i forgot what a guillermo del toro movie is like actually yeah uh, <laughs> and now when you watch it holy shit it's so intense and dark and scary yeah, and, and then it's also, like, on a level of, like, human, the human aspect of it, the yeah. sort of uh, the journey that the characters go through, uh, uh, Edith's, uh, the main character's sort of journey, like, losing her father, uh, sorry, I'm pregnant, spoiler territory here, murder, the intrigue, and all this stuff, then she gets taken to England and then she starts like realizing like, okay, well, this charming British guy, there's something up here with him and his sister. And then you watch her sort of do it. And then, you know, her, you have her like, they always try to pitch it as a love interest. I never got that. Like, obviously uh, the doctor character played by Charlie Hunnam is very much in love with Edith, mm-hmm. but it really seems like a very platonic friendship in his his interest isn't because he's going to go save her. He's like, I want to know what's going on, what happened. So he's going to do his own investigation and come to his own conclusions because he cares about this person, not because it's like, oh. And of course, you know, you can spin it romantically. I think the romance is more between Tom Hiddleston's uh, character and Mia. I always butcher her last name. She's one of my favorite actors. Wasikowska. Wasikowska. Yeah, I always, I always just mumble through that one. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite actors, but I always feel bad because I just never know how to like, even now I forgot. But um, I think the romance is still between uh, the Baronet Sharp and Edith. And yeah. I think a lot of people try to pick Alan uh, McMichael, I think his name, Dr. McMichael. He's just coming because he's like, okay, now I know things are messed up and I'm going to get there. And I just... I love that. I just love that sort of like care. And you could say like, yeah, he look he looks at her forlorn, but like that description's like, oh, she's got a childhood lover, and then she, then she gets whisked off by this like mysterious lover. And I'm like, that's true, kind of, except for there's only really one 
love story here. Uh, well, that's not true. There's multiple love stories, but there's one that's like the core mm-hmm. and it's not a great one, but there's great moments within it. And I think that's the point of it. And I also feel like she's writing a story that's told early on when she gives her manuscript into that publisher. It's like, mm, it needs a love story. It can't just be a ghost story. And then guess what? We're watching a movie. That's a ghost story that gets a love story thrown in there. It, it, it just mirrors it so perfectly and then there's dialogue, and I, I once again, it's been a spoiler. The only time Edith and Thomas are away from sort of the control of his sister is when they get snowed in in that little thing. And he's like talking about it. it's like, oh, I love this character you're writing. He's so dark. And does he make it? And then she says, well, he has to decide. And then you think about what's going on in this, and you have this character who's actually, I think, fallen in love with this person. He's damaged and completely messed up and certainly has done a lot of shitty things. But he has fallen in love with this person for the first time, even though this is not their first rodeo at what they're, what they're attempt to do, which is get money. Uh-huh. But so basically, he sits there, he's talking about characters he's writing, but it's also talking about his character. Like, it's so nuanced and wonderfully displayed that I just love that moment where she's like the character has to decide because the characters speak to you as a character in a film is talking. Like it's got this meta quality to it that I don't really know how much is in other del Toro films. And it's, I don't, and it's not a lot of Gothic horror, like Gothic horror is generally just straight, but here you are having characters talking about plot structure in a novel that's literally happening in the story you're watching. It really is a great way to, you said already that it seems like an adaptation and it's such a great way to essentially adapt the genre to show that all of these tropes, all of this method of storytelling comes from these novels. And instead of one and one making an adaptation of a pre-existing piece or work, he has decided to have an author who is writing a gothic novel be able to communicate to the audience this is how we're gonna have to watch this movie basically and it's a real tall ask to make an audience in 2015 who are really just salivating for del toro's take on the conjuring to say i'm sorry but you're gonna have to watch this movie the same way you would read jane eyre Oh, 100%. And, and, and that's why I love it. Uh, even though I fell asleep the first time, the second time I watched it, I was like, holy crap, I know exactly what's like. It was like a little primer for me. But it's just so good. And there's just so much that just, I just love the concept of like, the characters are the centerpiece. And the stuff I find the scariest isn't the brilliant, obviously, anytime there's practical effects and Doug Jones involved. Oh, you're, you know you're in for a good time like but those aren't my favorite parts of the movie my favorite parts of the movie are when she's t- still trying to figure out what's going on and asking him like oh have you ever been to milan and he goes yes once and then he looks forlorn and sort of looks off because obviously this is going to represent sort of a lot of times he's sort of fucked over other people to get money and then have you know then die and she just says to him point blank you're looking into the past. I'm not there. I'm here. Yeah, I love that line so much. Like I was like, holy crap, because then you think about that, 
and how many times in our lives we're just like in conversations with people, but we're still hung up on something that happened a week ago, two months ago, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. And that's influencing our decisions of it. And it's so hard to be in the moment. But then you also think about it. That's also a ghost for him. Yeah. And then you think about his relationship with his sister, who pretty much is also always a representation of ghosts, not just for anything, but any moment he's and he's always in a room with his sister, mostly because she wants control and she's like trying to move things the way it's going. So the one moment where you actually have Edith and Thomas sort of sharing an actual tender moment with that line is so amazing and it's and it, and it has to happen outside of when he's stuck with the ghost of his past but every time he's in that house it's definitely a reminder of all the tragedy that went there but every time he sees his sister it's a reminder of all the tragedy that they have and they're all ghosts within themselves before they're even dead oh. and then of course you take oh. Edith's actual like ghosts who are also attached to them and then her past and they're all there, but it's basically like it's a ghost story before you even know anyone's dead. Like, and that's what I love about it. It's, it's like because that is what having a ghost is. It's like when you see something, you can't get over it. You can't move past it. That's a ghost. Like, I mean, people may disagree with that statement, but I think you are stuck with ghosts if you, if, if you can't in that moment be there. And he does end up being there, of course, is temporary because what is actually – foretold to happen which is basically okay well you're gonna marry her she's gonna give us her money we're gonna kill her just like they did all the other time and then i sort of think it never really worked or did it work and maybe she's just they're just so obsessed with like continuing structure again happen again and again i don't remember quite if they got money in the past or if they're just so addicted to the habit especially i think uh, his sister's character more than him. He's just along for the ride, which is a weird thing to say a lot of times. It's, but he's also not good. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of look at how they are stuck in patterns themselves and what they're doing. And we're getting it from a new perspective through Edith's eyes. And then she ends up uncovering sort of the past experiences that are very similar. And it's just really interesting how it's sort of like a detective story but also like one that's dealing with like wounds, like and one's one that's like dealing with love and one that's dealing with sort of like ghosts, but not just the ghosts that are scary, the ghosts that are in our brains or when we see someone or when we're not in the present. That, that's a wonderful analysis. Uh, I love, there's a lot to unpack there and I do want to kind of touch upon every little thing here uh, for a second. Yeah. Uh, first things first, that whole statement that you had about, you know, the past being these ghosts that linger in the mind of all the characters. Um, it's such a del Toro perspective on ghosts. Yeah. The opening lines of The Devil's Backbone has, like, what is a ghost? A ghost is just a memory. And they start telling about, you know, the, the memories of, of who we were, or who we knew, and all that. And so this theme is embedded into this film. And I love how del Toro can always take a familiar storytelling device or genre and infuse it with his own sensibilities and his own poetry. And this is no 
you know, exception to that rule. In fact, I think it's one of the most Del Toro films in his whole lineup. Um, you know, you take Pacific Rim, and that's his sense of humor <laughs> that is that is thrown into that film. And this film is really like you, you, everybody. You've been asking for me to do one of my my films in English, and he did. And people didn't know how to respond to it because he chose a very kind of Eurocentric, almost Aryan white kind of tropey genre to throw out there. And it kind of jarred people up because it didn't have the same Spanish influence that the other films had. Right. But the the DNA is still there. How ghosts are treated, what they mean. Uh, You also have the idea, the thing that really, really struck me with what you were talking about after that was the relationship between Lucille and Thomas. So you have Jessica Chastain's Lucille, who's the more, uh, say, uh, disturbed of the two individuals, of 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 the siblings. And it made me think about how if the memories of all these crimes that they've committed and all these past potential loves, but people he forced himself to not truly love are ghosts. But Lucille is the one who is always around him. She's a haunting, isn't she? Oh, yeah. So you have the difference between ghosts and haunting. As when you had that thing like they were ghosts before they ever died. Yeah. That really hit me. That was such a beautiful line. I love that. It, I think, is one of the most perfect encapsulations of what makes this movie so special because it shows hauntings and the whole kind of pathos of ghosts in a profoundly complex way because it's the 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 sheer idea that you're a ghost before you're even dead is it says a lot and this movie it really shows it uh to your question about whether it was successful in the past or not I can't give you a definitive on that one. It's been a little while since I've seen the film. Uh, I watched it last night and I still can't figure out. That is one problem with the film too. Yes. In fact, I yep. was actually going to, I had originally thought, oh, I need to ask Justin, like, what was their whole plot and stuff again? Because I don't know if you have the same, but every time I watch it, I I follow along and then they get to the mansion. And from that point on, I'm just swept away by all yeah. that. And I just forget to care about the details of the story anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't matter anymore. It's just so much human exploration at that point that I'm so driven yeah. by these motivations and, and characters and their thoughts and their feelings that I just kind of forget like, yeah, I get it. You, you, you murdered some women for, I guess, I guess money. I don't, <laughs> it kind of loses me. That's it. Cause, uh, and one of my favorite scenes is when, uh, Edith finds that, uh, Phonograph and listens to his, uh, I think, first wife's recording, yeah. where she's sort of talking about being poisoned. It's so good, but even then, the details are so like. But wait, why was it in this uh, the Italian woman's luggage? Like, there's, and I'm sure if I actually like paid more attention, maybe I don't know. I've watched this like 15 times, and I don't really care. But I always get sort of confused by all of it. But I do like that they sort of sum up what happened when they were kids by using the other character of the doctor who shows up with the news article clipping. Be like, hey, these kids murdered their mother. And he, you know, like, here's like proof of it happening. And I think that's good. But, you know, you sort of like think about all the, like, the little details, but they're not really important because what's important are 
sort of what's going on, as you said, what's going on in each person's mind and what they're dealing with and what ghosts they're dealing with. And like, but to me, I kind of wonder, since they killed their mother and then they kind of were just sort of stuck with the name, eventually got the house and then it's falling apart. It's being destroyed. Literally, the house is dying, yeah. which is another great thing because the yeah. house is itself a ghost because it's a ghost of the memories of where it was. But then you have this plan where like he's going to get a bride who has money. They're going to use that money or maybe he's throwing all into the machine. It's interesting because he's trying to build that clay machine, which is the first introduction with him, aside from when he flirts with Edith, is he's talking to trying to get money from America to, to get this machine. And I love how much Del Toro shows him working on it because you can tell he pa- is passionate about it. The rest of Thomas is very detached unless it's with the machine, which is where I think he thinks the future of getting the family name back up. Lucille doesn't care at all about the machine. She makes it very, very clear. She wants money. I don't think she wants that. I think she wants to kill people. Yeah. I like this game we have. We make it so people are basically no one's going to look for him. We bring him here. We have him under a ruse. These people think Thomas is in love with them. We get their money. I get to kill. And I think that's her end game. And I think his end game is like actually trying to get money to work on this machine and build it so he can make a name for himself. Because you just see the passion in Hiddleston's emotions as Sir Thomas, when he's working on the machine, there's only like two or three scenes of it. But every time, the first thing he tells Edith is like, I can't wait to show you upstairs to show you what I'm working on. Like, And then it's just fascinating because I don't think he was the same way with other people the way as with Edith. Like, I think there's on the recording with his first wife and she's like, say something. And it's like, what do you want me to say? And she's like, say you love me. And he just sighs. He goes, because <sighs> he knows what their end game is. But I think with Edith, even though he's trying to play along with the same system, I think in the back of his brain, he's like, why am I doing this? I actually legitimately like this person and I want to be with this person. Why am I self-sabotaging myself and then potentially causing more harm, which you already had with the father. But it's a fascinating look at the character. And especially when you sort of listen to sort of like the, the way they talk when they're alone away from the sister although there's only really one moment of that it's like almost a different character and it's almost what she says in that dialogue about the story she's writing the character is decide for himself now of course this is not a movie where he can decide to be good and then the fact he killed four other women with his sister um he's oh hunky dory they're gonna fall in love but he he does make that decision later on when like he stabs the doctor and he's like if i don't do this my sister's going to do this. So tell me where to stab you knowing like he's going to tell him where he can stab him and he's not going to die. There's another great thing about that is like Charlie Hunter's character, uh, Alan McMichael, he comes delivers some very poignant lines, but isn't a savior at all. Uh-uh. In fact, the action sequences in this film are between Edith and Lucille. Yeah. Like that's the only real action is between those two. Because the scene where Sir Thomas stabs Alan is not very, like, there's no choreography. It's just like, okay, that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to ask you where to stab you. And then after that, Alan is just in, you know, not there until the very end when Edith deals with what she needs to deal with and leaves with him. It's awesome. Because, like, in other stories, especially gothic horror stories, it would be sort of that, oh, here's the character who's going to come save the day. Here's the strong male character. 
was going to come save the day and be an action hero. It's like, that guy's not going to be an action hero. That guy's going to be, hey, I dug up some evidence. I'm bringing her out of here. I know you're trying to poison her because she told me we're leaving. And then it's just fascinating to look at through that lens because uh, this story told even 20 years ago, I think, would have had a different angle to it. Yeah, I think depending on who would have picked it up too. I mean, it's possible that Del Toro would have already had that sort of approach to it. But you're right. I think it being released around 2015 gave it the freedom to kind of breathe a bit and to take the risks, right? Del Toro already had... It's kind of like Malignant is to James Wan, how it's like, I'm just going to make the movie I want to make because everybody knows who I am and you will pay to see my movies. Right. So you can get away with doing these risky things of saying like, no, 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 it's going to be really Jane Eyre. It's going to be the class, you know, Wuthering Heights, you know, it has to be about female empowerment. It has to be about the exploration of the intricacies of these characters. So we can't have white knights. We can't have these chauvinists who rue the day. In fact, I love that both of the male protagonists in this film are very sensitive characters who in a way are kind of useless <laughs> throughout yeah. most of it. And it's all about these two women who are kind of foils for each other coming at each other. Yeah. In Lucille's case, um, I mean, yeah, I agree that she could be, you know, having a bloodthirst and trying to kill people all the time. But I th- also feel that it comes from this sense of ownership and love over mm-hmm. Thomas. I think oh, yeah. that might be why they killed the mother in the first place. It's like, well, mother doesn't love us as much or could never love you as much as I love you. Right. And so she has a sick obsession with her brother. And uh-huh. I am really, really drawn into Del Toro's exploration of the concept of love in this film. In fact, you know, this is where we're getting into the philosophical aspects of beauty as well that he's touching into. Mm-hmm. It, it really reminds me of Edmund Burke's whole philosophy that the feeling that we have in response to a moment of beauty is similar to the responses uh, that we have emotionally to feeling love. And I kind of agree, you know, how love can be a very just comforting, warm feeling, but it can also be this overwhelming, painful, devastating experience, especially if it's one-sided. So you have the two sides, right? You have Edith who is experiencing this very honest love with Thomas, but the pain comes from knowing that they have to be separated from each other. And Mm -hmm. then you have Lucille, who's feeling nothing but the pain. She's in the realm of obsession, and she's twisted love, the concept at least, of love into something distorted and evil because it's more about ownership than it is about actually loving someone because she wouldn't have killed Thomas the way she does at the end of the film. If she truly loved him, she would have found a way to make this work. So it's it's such a poignant dissection of that concept and then yeah. presents it to us in this very complicated, just, I mean, and also wonderfully dramatic over the top <laughs> kind of way. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, all the things you're talking about there, I think, contribute to that story arc of what does it mean to love somebody? And yeah. Do the ghosts of our past really mean anything in the face of our present? 
it's something you know to come back to that real quick as well it, it's that's such a really powerful line for me because it's something that i actually go through personally and i'm sure a lot of us do if we have baggage and past relationships and stuff yeah. I, I have a hard time sometimes showing trust to my partner and it's not that i distrust her at all it's just that i have had my trust really taken advantage of by others in the past or I myself have done things to where I've betrayed people's trust in, in, in my past, and I've grown through that. And so I value being able on you know face value to be able to trust things. Yeah. And so then I start to doubt, and then if she starts to say something that somebody said to me in the past, or even if I've lied to people in a similar fashion, I start to doubt, like, how can somebody be genuine about this? And... She makes it really clear, and it's always a very powerful moment between the two of us when mm-hmm. I have when I let that guard down, and I'm just like I'm just gonna trust that every time that I do or say this, you're not judging me, and it is okay. And suddenly I'm allowed to like explore more facets of who I am without guarding myself, basically. So you know, this film really shows what it's like to be under the thumb of a toxic relationship your entire life. You have right. Thomas. And like you said, he changes when he's just around Edith. It shows that their love and trust with each other is a very genuine thing because, especially because of that line, like, I'm your presence, man. And yeah. I can imagine it hit him like a sack of bricks that he's just like, I am really valuing the wrong things in my life. Yeah. And, and it's insane. And he also knows like he can't have like this romantic, like, okay, but he needs to change. And I guess I'm going to, I'm going to comment on that as well. I, I relate to it in that way a lot as well. Hmm. Just personally, uh, I have not always been the best partner to in the past, you know, and uh, uh, sometimes just like, uh, just would not, not be great. And, you know, it's all about learning. But I think the thing is like, the aspect of control is so important in the film, but also I think so important in relationships. Control should never be the goal ever. Like, you know, we still live in this, uh, even a, in 2022, we still live in a world where it's like, oh, you get married. Okay, well now, you know, not possession, but it's like this weird, like underspoken thing that's like, oh, well now this means this exclusively and only this. And I'm not going to grow anymore because guess what? We're together. Um, it's like, no, the point is growth. And the point is to have those uncomfortable conversations. The point is to sort of dive deep in get to a place where you could express to your partner. All right. You know, I sort of, this has happened to me in the past where I've maybe said this in the past or this line has been said in the past before, but this isn't the past. This is now. And now I'm sitting across from you or wherever we're having this conversation. And I'm committed to now because that's where I am. And that's where it is. I'm going to have learned hopefully from the past. I'm going to try to, and I'm always going to try to grow. And that's, uh, the commitment you should make, not like, okay, well, and I think that's a lot of it. Like people stop growing and then the world still moves around them, but they just don't want to change. Cause they're like, Oh, well, I have my, I have my partner. So, and it's interesting. Cause I think you look in the, you see a moment with the characters where they could be like, Oh, he took in what she said. And then you juxtapose that to all the moments with the sister, which are just like, when are you doing this? We got to do this. Now's the time. Here we go. And it makes him evil too. Like he's he's a culprit in this. Like he uh-huh. went along. So she's not just the evil one. She's not the only one trapped by ghosts. But they're sort of different ghosts. 
And it's really interesting when he says right before he dies, but he's like, this had to end at some point. Like this couldn't go on. There, there had to be a point where we reached this. And of course that led her to being uh, jealous. And then, you know, it's, and then to that awesome fight between her and Edith is I think fascinating that you get the action set pieces between these two polar opposites representation of characters. And more importantly, through women in a non like comic book environment yeah. as well. It's, it was an incredible yeah. thing. It isn't, it's also sad to say like in 2015, what an incredible thing to see in a movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> depressing. That's depressing. It's quite as depressing. Yeah. It really is. Um, but it's, it was wonderful to see, you know, especially like young women as well. You have Lucille mm-hmm. who's a little older, but then you have Edith who's just like this young, vibrant, naive, but also very self-sufficient woman who's just really learning how to be more independent, especially since her father is gone. All of the male yeah. figures that took care of her, they're not there for her anymore. And she's just, yeah. you know, it's like Simba and Scar at this moment. Yeah. It's like time to step up and take the yeah. shit and, and fix it. Um, and you're right. What, what Thomas was saying to Lucia as well, like, it was never going to be sustainable. And I think that comes down to respect and love as well. You can't pretend to love each other in that way when really you're just trying to control each other or at the even worse, you're just trying to keep things the way they were when you were kids and yep. will do anything at all costs to not change basically. Well, and that's it. And that sort of goes back to like the point of love is to change the point. I mean, the point of love is to grow the, it like, I mean, the point of humanity yeah. being alive is to, to grow and then try to be better than you were the day before. And maybe not, maybe that's not even good example of it i always say that line and then uh sometimes i don't know if that's really it but like i think it's really like it's just such a this is like a look at love in in a way that's entertaining but the more and more i watch it the more and more i relate to aspects of this film that the first time i saw it i didn't but that's because of where i've gone through my life since 2015 you know and i just sort of like the way it just sort of looks at love as more than an idea as like, as another character of the story. I hate that line. It's like the house is a character. You know what I, you always say about New York? It's a character in my film. You know, like there's always like those like bullshit lines, but it's fascinating to sort of see my, as I go through my journey in this life, what I relate to and what lines maybe stuck out a little different every time I watch it or where I kind of go. I mean, that that past line is it's hit me since day one, like because I used to be a type of person who would just be completely stuck in the past, and it's I just love that because it's basically like you're always looking into the past, but I'm here. That is such a profound line. The other profound line, which really uh, shows her independence early on, and it's one of my another one of my favorite key lines when she's meeting that, and they're sort of talking about him coming, and then like uh, that uh, very rich woman's like runs into her in the hallway. She's going to try to get her manuscript taken. Alan's mother. She's like, oh, well, he's coming. Uh, don't worry. He'll always be a Jane Austen. She's like, you know what? I'd rather be Mary Shelley. She died a widow. And it's like, yes, I love that. And I sort of fucked up the line there, but I think just her being like, you know, I don't really envision myself as a Jane Austen, more of a Mary Shelley, which one, gothic horror. Two, once uh, Mary Shelley lost, per- uh, not, yeah, Percy, she just 
apparently kept his heart and then uh, was just a widow. And it's just, it's like to sort of throw that back in this like hoity-toity woman's face here. It's like, all right, I like this character. I like where she's going. And then, you know, there's like that weird thing because it's the time where like the guy's like, oh, this you've got great penmanship. And then she's like, I need to type this, dad, because my handwriting's too feminine. And he's like, after he gave her like that gift pen, mm-hmm. all right, yeah, type it at the office, you know, and it, that sort of sets the whole thing up. And I just think it's, I love, I love the character of Edith so much. And I, I would definitely say it's one of my favorite protagonists of all of Del Toro's films and a lot of horror films. I think the performance is great. The written character is great. And watching that character be so fully developed out the gate is such a strong piece because she is, uh, she was a younger actor at the time, but she's had, she's had had that control. I haven't seen her in anything recently and it sort of bums me out, but, uh, cause I, cause I think she's a phenomenal uh, performer. I don't know if you saw the uh, film Stoker. Yes. Yeah. Another one. I thought about that one too. Like, Oh my God. She's a fantastic actress, yeah, and she really breathes life into Edith for this particular film. She yeah. does the the gentle and naive, but the fire behind it in such a subtle way. Yeah, in fact, I remember when these movies were coming out. I actually wasn't a huge fan of hers, but I think it's more to do with the fact that I had a big prejudice and the fact that I'm a huge Alice in Wonderland nut, and those movies that. Uh, Burton did were just so egregious <laughs> and offensive to me that she just didn't work for me yeah. at all because it was just a bad script and it wasn't her fault. Yeah. She actually did everything she could to make the fact that Alice was like 25 years old work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not actually seen either of those and I have no interest. Don't. Just don't. And I know that's what like literally catapulted her into stardom quote unquote but i think the first thing i saw with her was this or maybe something else but it's like i was just blown away by that performance and how she because at that point tom hiddleston was kind of getting to be a big thing and everyone else and charlie hunnam you know was in pacific rim so you're basically like working with these actors who are wonderful it's like but she blows them both out of the water yeah oh yeah easily easily it's also hard because i love charlie hunnam I actually do. I, I just, I've always liked his actor, but his American accent. It's atrocious. I, I, it's so bad. It's just awful. And I was just like, buddy, you could have made this take place in England because you're starring. No one, no one's American here in your cast, especially out of your leads, I, except for Je- Jessica Chastain, I believe. Yes. So you could have just put that. And I know he wanted to have it be in America and she does a great accent. But it's his accent. I but I love the character so much, like how he's talking about ghosts with her in that scene, and she's like, "You never showed me this interest before." And it's also another one of those moments where, like, oh yeah, that's what this is all about. He's like, "Oh yeah, look at these photographs," and he like, "It's like holy crap, this is so cool to have these moments." And like, they're little character developments that I, I just don't think you get in a lot of other films, especially with similar nature. Because Alan McMichael is not a main important character really he's definitely secondary but he's also interested in ghost he's interested not just because and i think a lot of people are like oh it's because he's trying to woo her because she's writes horror no i think he's just like yeah i mean maybe if she was interested in me i would uh pursue it but he's just like and she's like you've never shown me this before and and it's like well you never gave me an opportunity to so it was just i like those cool little moments like that 
One thing that I got from what you've been saying about Edith and her character development is Del Toro explores a lot of cliché in this film, but he does the thing that I think is just wonderful if you're going to explore cliché, which is he explores the point behind them. So, you know, you have clichés like um, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Yeah. And you have a lot of films that will have a character respond of like, try it. I forgot what movie that is, but, it, you know, uh, you, you have a lot of that in film. Whereas in this case, it's used as a, an exploration of a character who's making it really clear, like, she has such a profound association and desire for love and respect for love that she would rather to have had a very strong love with somebody and hold on to that and be a widow and just move on with her life because she still loves herself a lot. Then you get to the other cliche, which has really been popularized with drag race, uh, which is, you know, if you can't love yourself, how can you love anybody else? (laughs) That's a very toxic one that's being misused a lot in mainstream media. And I'm happy that del Toro puts it into the film in a way to really show what that means because it doesn't really mean that it's impossible for you to have empathy for others if you have no care or love for yourself. It's more so just saying that there is a type of love there that you will never be able to fully comprehend with another person because you won't be able to receive their love without being able to accept it and apply it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where a lot of the changes that we were talking about comes from, too. Once you really open yourself up and learn how to trust another person, you really are able to do it because you're also learning how to let go of your past and let go of people judging you for things that you have done and just accepting the fact that you have changed, you have grown, and try to love who you are right now. Because if you're stuck in the past you aren't actually benefiting your present or your future. And if that's supposed to be with another person, you're not really showing them the care and love and respect that they deserve because they're giving you everything and you are filtering it through this lens of, I'm not good enough. And I love that this movie explores that because you see it through Thomas's uh, storyline that he can't let go of these things. Lucille can't, oh, I hit my microphone there. Lucille can't <laughs> let go of anything. Uh, whereas Edith is just an open book, which <laughs> there's a cliche in and of itself when you're talking about an author, but um, you know she is just pure in that sense, but not pure from this poor writing, almost Mary Sue kind of level. She's pure in that she has already gone through a lot of soul searching and thinking and contemplation. And when she is put against these characters who are rigidly stuck in their past she is the doorway basically to walk through to get out of that and then that's where you get your conflict that's where you get lucille who's just digging her feet in the sand or in this case the clay Mm -hmm. and not letting go um and of course you also have the cliche that you mentioned about places being characters and in this case it couldn't be more just literal 
without the house literally like winking and talking to them. Uh, but it has like the face on the outside of the effigy of the house. It has the <laughs> fact that it is decaying and slowly dying as the relationship between Thomas and Lucille becomes weaker and weaker and weaker over time. And then, of course, you have the blood red clay mixed with all the murders, all the tone of it, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just I I love cliches. I really do. I just think that the problem with them is that over time, it's like the telephone game, right? Over time, people forget what the point of it all was. And it becomes a cliche because it's kind of honestly just somebody saying words and not really knowing what they're meaning. And they know a general context of it. But... In the case of this film, it's looking at what we would consider to be a cliche and actually saying, like, this is where it originated, so this is what I'm actually going to apply in my film. And I think that's just a gorgeous use of these uh, concepts. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, I I basically think he was, like, intentionally, I'm also a fan of cliches because, I mean, there are cliches for a reason. But once you lose the messaging behind it, or worse, the cliche could be sort of like twisted in a way that is like manipulative, you know, like, and you can take it and be like, oh, well, this is the way it is because you find your soulmate and here's X, Y, and Z. And this has to be true because blah, 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 blah. And it's like, all right, well, are you just saying that? Or are you just actually, do you actually, are you actually feeling it? Or are you just saying that because like you're trying to write yourself a storybook narrative? that um, isn't true that's really just based upon cliches or fables you know like and as someone who has done that in the past it's very interesting to be in uh, a relationship where I'm not doing that I'm just totally like here and it's existing and then it's also like holy shit why did I waste so much of my time trying to write these people into existence or write this moment when instead of just living through it so it's fascinating to look at that because like, I feel like I can relate to the Thomas or the Lucille being hung up on the past so much, but it's also interesting because Edith also has her past and her, the first ghost we see in the movie is her dead mother worried about Crimson Peak. And then she encounters all the ghosts in Crimson Peak, but her reaction to the way the ghosts are, even though they're literal ghosts and you don't really see Thomas or Lucille act with the ghosts, but I think the ghosts that are more powerful are the ones that are trapping them. And the ones that she's like, basically like, oh, I want to learn. Why are you trying to talk to me? What's going on? I'm going to play detective now and figure out what's going on on my own. One, because I'm a writer. And two, I'm not afraid. Like when I was a little girl, I was scared once because and, and there are moments that she's running away from them because she doesn't know what's going on. So there is fear there. But once she accepts who they are and what's going on, She's no longer like, oh, you're here to hurt me. She's like, oh, no, I'm, you're here to tell me something. Hmm. Just like my mother was here to tell me something. And so I just think it's weird that the ones who don't see ghosts, who, by all intents and purposes, created the ghost, are hung up on other ghosts. And they're the ones who are trapped, even though they're not the ones who are experiencing them. They're just experiencing the house falling apart, which also creates a metaphor and sort of a the deterioration of... The, the name, the, the sharp name, and then also deterioration of a relationship that should have never been a relationship to begin with, aside from a sibling one, but it became something more. And that's another whole other area. But I think it's really fascinating because you don't need them to be siblings and you can have that same control, controlled relationship or attempt at control. 
And you're attempting that control because the ghosts that they're both hung up on are going to dictate their future no matter what, unless they let go and decide to move forward. Absolutely. And and what you were talking about earlier with the whole concept of, you know, control versus love, how control doesn't really factor much into love. And it often is just us holding on to our past, to the way things were. And so when you get in a new relationship, you can become controlling because you just kind of want to live your life the way it is or yeah. was versus the way it's going to be and could right. be. And this is explored in very extreme ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it is there, and it is a really good, powerful narrative for people, and it's very romantic. In fact, I think it's very fitting uh, for those who may not know. Like this is Monday, so it is Valentine's Day while we're recording this. We're talking about love and the intricacies of it. And stuff. <laughs> um, if I may be, be sappy for just a moment. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I'll get a little personal, and, and since it is Valentine's Day, although we don't really celebrate it in this house or anything, I do think it's just quite special to be talking about this. We're so open about our partners and our relationships and stuff, and I do want to make it clear, like, you know, this movie came out in 2015, my relationship with my current partner began in 2015, and there was a lot of exploration going on uh, emotionally. A lot of turmoil, too, because of my past relationship was also falling apart at the same time. A lot of poor decisions were made on my part. A lot of things were just not handled well. And I hurt a lot of people along the way. But I will say getting with my current partner has been one of those just life-changing and just de biggest developments that I have ever experienced. And it's because of her eternal patience, her openness she, she's very much like edith looking you know through the lens of curiosity and wonderment but also trying to solve things and fix things and i just want to say viva i love you very much thank you so much for being in my life and uh yeah very fitting to talk about this on valentine's day you know ah beautiful uh we also don't celebrate valentine's day so uh i never have i've never liked it it's so silly but i mean i think this is a great way to talk about love in a way that is like not your typical like, oh, here's here's your gift or here's your thing for this one day. Uh -huh. I also wanted to uh, loop back to the concept of like, and a lot of times the control comes from because like, it's like almost cultural as well. It's like, okay, well, this is what I saw my parents do, or this is what I saw them, you know, like, and then you sort of watch, or this is what the world says these things are. And so you're not really like looking at it from like a perspective, like, Oh, I don't think I'm being controlling. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks of the bad guy until you have to look in the mirror and realize, Oh no, I have been mm -hmm. the bad guy. I have hurt people. I have made decisions that have directly impacted other people's lives. And it's hard to look in the mirror and say that, but it's like, you have to. And I feel like that's what, uh, uh you know, to bring it back to the movie. Um, some of these characters aren't willing to do that. They're just like, okay, I'm going to keep going through the motions. And if you go through the motions, sort of the way you look at the world and the way the world is viewed through your own eyes becomes distorted because you're not looking at the whole picture. You're just looking at the picture you wanted to see. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. If you just have your viewpoint that you want, your desires, 
And then if somebody's bringing in a worldview that is different than that, you're going to clash. Yep. And if you're both being stubborn about it, then is that really a relationship or is that just a competition and uh, basically a habit at that point? You're just kind of used to the process that you have together, but really you're just constantly telling each other, do it my way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And it's just interesting to get glean all that from a from a horror picture. <laughs> right? It's almost as if they were never in any need of being elevated in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, this one never really got called elevated. It just got called like, oh, I hate this movie. Uh, a lot of people. Uh, they're like, this isn't a Del Toro movie. This is... But I, I think it's... It might be my favorite of his. That's a hard... That's actually a hard thing to say. Ooh. I think I really like it and I really like it because I felt like it was sort of stepping out of his wheelhouse, even though he wasn't at all. Cause like all the movies before this with the exception of Pacific Rim had very much like a, like not similar vibe. Cause obviously this is Gothic horror and the other ones were more, as you said earlier, fairy tale based, but I think it's interesting to sort of see his take on Gothic horror and his take on love and then, you know, he kind of continues, has continued to explore this concept a lot more after this movie, I think. Yeah. Not that, not that to say that they're in, in the previous films that there weren't explorations of love or that, but I think, I think this was really it. And I, to do that through the Gothic core lens and visually so beautiful. Oh my, like the, you know, the clay, the, how the house looks when it's in, when it's in New York and it's all bright and like, like total, like not your typical Del Toro sort of um, vibe. Mm -hmm. I love that because I think it really allowed for you to get to know Edith before sort of the darkness came. And then you got to see her process her own darkness by losing her father and then process the darkness of being trapped in the middle of England, but also being like still as strong as she was when she was that, I'm going to get published. I'm going to send this to the Atlantic Monthly. And it's, it's very interesting to sort of see that happen and to sort of see that same character go go through the journey that she goes on and in typical del toro fashion too if you have moments where it's all bright and shiny and happy you need to look a little deeper right because although edith may have seemed as if she was very happy she was in a comfort zone Mm -hmm. you know actually losing her father ended up benefiting her in a lot of ways not yeah. to say that he was oppressive at all. It's just that he was still part of this patriarchal system that didn't really do anything to support her. He just had this, well, maybe your time will come. Didn't really hold her back, but didn't do much to really foster her as an author. Right. And at in the same note, like she's always been trapped. She's been mm-hmm. trapped because she was a woman in that era. And yeah. I think that the whole event that she has living in this house and living with the sharps and dealing with all of this horrible stuff makes her grow to a person that is never going to be pushed around ever again. There is no one ever in this world who could possibly intimidate this woman after the shit she's experienced and persevered against. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And also, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that nails the head. Like, there's just no way. And also, of course, it's exaggerated and it's really intense. And I don't know her fall. I think she probably would have gotten a little more injured than she did. That just hurt her leg. Uh-huh. 
it doesn't need to have reality because uh, it's still it's still fiction. Yeah. But I think what really becomes strong is like it's like you can go through ar- arduous, tough, insane moments, and they're always going to impact you. But it's like it also can strengthen you. And I think you know, I think she's going to go on, and her story is going to change, and it's going to tell the story of that. I think you know, I think which I think she was already sort of doing in a weird way. But that's what I envision the character goes. I don't, and I don't think she leaves with McMichael, but I don't think they have a relationship. I don't know. Who knows? And maybe there was supposed to be more of like a love, but it's like, it was a couple like glances. And then the dad liked this guy because he was a doctor. And that was it. The actual dynamic between them and that maybe, I don't know if that's just how the acting was, but it didn't seem like there was anything there in my opinion. Where the second she meets Thomas Sharp, it's like, oh, you could feel it. And maybe that was just the actor's chemistry, but I don't think so, because I think Del Toro's trying to say something a little different. Because it's not going to be your typical, like, oh, here's your male protagonist, so we're going to vie for the love of this woman. It's going to be her on herself, making her decisions and going on this journey. And I think the value of him showing up to, quote unquote, save her, isn't really the point. I think it's, he's just there out of like loyalty to like their friendship and who she is and knowing that she's probably not safe. Yeah. It's a, it, it's potentially a different kind of love there. And huh. I think as the IMDb synopsis implies, uh, and I agree with you a little incorrectly, it's not so much love in a romantic sense as much as it is love in a very pure sense of just like, but I, I love and I care for you and I will do anything mm-hmm. to keep you safe. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to walk you down the aisle. Or right, right. Um, exactly. At the time, probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it does end up that way just because it's just like, that's just what people did, you know? It's just yeah. out of the time period. But it's story-wise, development-wise, thematically, Edith would probably be like, thanks, but no thanks, if he was even in love with her. And so, yeah. this, but because it's a romance, I think people start to think, oh, then everything has to be romantic. But yeah. Del Toro's movies always come back to love, whether it's familial love, whether it's love for, like you know, brotherly love, sisterly love, mother to daughter, a romantic love. This was the first time to really get into possibly, no, no, not the only time, but the first time to really get into romantic love. Then in the shape of water, you have like romance, but then from the perspective of otherness and alterity. So what is it like to have love that is considered taboo or is considered to be weird to other people, even though you yourself are already othered by everybody else so why right. even getting involved in your love life in the first place really wonderful like queer allegory there and in this case this is a more heterosexual take on romance and love and it's it's so well done because it's so complex because you do get the platonic you do get the familial and you get all these different layers and different aspects of it it's it's phenomenal work there. I wish I had more time to talk about it, but just because of how late yeah. it is and how much I, I, I unfortunately I do have to get up pretty early for work. But yeah, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time and and doing this so last minute. It's been a pleasure talking to you again, and especially to talk about I one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And, uh, not necessarily my favorite of Del, Del Toro's uh, filmography, but definitely in like the top five for me, which for, for me, a, a top five of Del Toro, it was pretty much all equal part one. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So 
it's it's a phenomenal pick and uh anytime i get to talk about it, it just brings me such joy so thank you for that of course thank you um then i'm going to wrap things up this podcast is sponsored by Logic Locks. Logic Locks creates and facilitates immersive real-life games for the masses. Is your company looking for an activity to do for your next team outing? Play their online game show experience, no pants required. Looking for a fright? Follow a curious researcher into the depths of the Amsterdam catacombs from the relative safety of your own home. Check out LogicLocks.com for more information. The Beauty of Horror is also proudly sponsored by the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad. For more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts like this one, be sure to check out anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. So... Dear listeners, what are your thoughts on Crimson Peak? Did you love it when it came out? Are you more of a fan nowadays like myself? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, so please uh, reach out to me on Twitter, which is at beautyhorrorpod, or via email, which is beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. And we do have our Discord server you could jump into as well. But again, thank you, Justin, for sitting down with me to discuss such a poignant and vibrant film. Where can everybody find you? And, and what do you have anything going on that you want to share with everybody? Uh, so at tw- on Twitter, at Justin-D-R-A-B-E-K. That's my Twitter handle. And then, uh, so I was doing this column for Killer Horror Critic uh, that is being revived uh, through... Manor, Manor Vellum. Yeah, that's it. Um, so they're going to be publishing, I think, in the next couple of days, the uh, first piece, again, with some additions that fit more with the um, vibe of what they go for. So that's going to be Spectre Watch. Um, so that's going to be coming out monthly. Uh, so basically, I sort of do like a personal. This is a little more universal uh, look at uh, their filmography. So that should be coming out. And that's all in terms of that. If you're in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, in the end of May, I'm going to be in a play oh. called Drop Dead, a farce. So I got cast at that on a lark. My partner was like, hey, this auditions, you should go audition. So I auditioned and then got cast. So that's going to be the end of May. So it's with the Oshkosh players. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm not done theater for a very, very long time. And this is a very heavy script of like, a lot of back and forth, so hopefully I can remember all my lines and uh, not completely fuck it up. But if you're in Wisconsin at the end of May, uh, come watch it and come see me. I don't know. That's it. Ah, oh, that sounds so fun! Congratulations on getting the role. Uh, the Thank theater, you. It's where I, you know, cut my teeth as well, and it's ah, I miss it. I, I really do. So super cool to hear somebody jumping back into it after a few yeah. years themselves. Yeah. And yes, Spectre Watch sounds so interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that being revived. I mean, Spectre Vision's whole lineup is just so good. So yeah, I, I love it. And it's been cool. And basically, um, so I had only done three entries through uh, Killer Horror Critic before Killer Horror sort of changed it, what it was going for. So I'm going to reprint those, but there's, there's additional stuff in each piece. And so the first one is on Toad Road which is a very, very tough movie to watch. Um, and then the next one after that's uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And then, so that's next month. And then uh, the month after that will be Cooties. So, Ooh. which you can find all those pieces uh, still on Killer Horror Critic, but they're going to, as I said, be a little different 
uh, in their new iteration. And then after that, we'll jump into, because I'm following it along chronologically, and then we'll be jumping into uh, the other uh, films because they have such great films. So I'm going to skip Colorado Space for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So we have no, want nothing to do with that movie. Uh, so I will uh, definitely not talk about that one. So if you're excited about that one, I apologize, but not doing it. Uh, but there's a bunch of other movies that I will definitely do everything else that they have put out. So Fantastic. And yeah, make sure that when the first like fresh ones are released, uh, send them my way and I'll make sure that the show notes of this episode are updated so that people can check out the home of the new run for yeah. to Watch. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no